Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by saltwater guide David Blinken. David shares his journey to the salt, his fishery off of Long Island, and some of the challenges it's facing today. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spends. The holidays and show season are just around the corner. Head over to www.nor-vice.com today to find the perfect gift for the tire on your list. And if you'll be in the Somerset, New Jersey area on November 11th or 12th, swing by the International Fly Tying Symposium and spend some time with the great folks at Norvice. Now, on to our interview. Well, David, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Well, thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Well, my earliest fishing memory is probably, might be in a backyard pond um, when I was, I don't know, probably five or six years old, and I was rummaging through a clock in a den, and I found all these long, skinny things with, with reels, and I had no idea what to do with it. And so my father put one together for me and took me into the backyard, and uh, and uh, I could see fish swimming along. And uh, I think one of my first casts, I got a large mouth, and no pun intended, I was hooked after that. And you, you know, you never forget the first of a fish you ever catch, and that one I remember as clear as day, even though it was, even though I was six years old. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. And so, when did you come to the dark side of fly fishing? Oh, the dark side. There is no dark side of fly fishing, really. I mean, you know, fly fishing is, uh, you know, it, you know, it's kind of the melding of art and sport and and and. You know, anything you can do with the fly rod, if you're, if you really are truly committed to it, is, is sort of a wonderful thing. You know, um, some people just, you know, they're fly rotting versus fly fishing, you know, using, you know, using, you know, you know, going for, you know, doing bait and switch. You know, other people are doing, uh, using sinking lines. Some people who dry fly fish are like dry or die. It's all good. It's all good. I, there's really no, there's no dark side. It's all, it's all the light. Yeah. And so, you know, you've, uh, you've been walking on the path for, for a while fly fishing. Who are some of the folks that mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what have they taught you? You know, it's really interesting. Uh, I can't really pick out a mentor per se, but there's a couple of people in my mind who really stand out, who really influenced me and probably first and foremost, um, uh, over the years would have been Captain Eddie Whiteman um, down in Isla Mirada. Um, or I think Eddie lives in Tavernier now. But, um, you know, the first time I carpentered um, with him and my father, I learned more in those first five days with Eddie than I think I learned collectively my previous 28 years of life. It was uh, just an incredible learning experience. I mean, I've been using a fly rod since I was six years old. and and 
And, uh, you know, I had a lot of experiences and I'm doing different things, but there were certain nuances that I really, I don't think I fully grasped and, um, probably more saltwater wise than freshwater wise. And, and wow, Eddie really, uh, Eddie really drove it home. It was pretty incredible. And, and I remember saying, I'm going to do this for a living. And Eddie said, don't say that on the boat with me. Your father will never hire me again. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I was laughing hysterically. Yeah. But it's interesting because you and I are roughly of the same vintage. And so we kind of had to learn this stuff kind of pre-internet. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, I was lucky. I, I got to, um, way back, I, I got a little experience fishing with Al Cooty and Al and I, you know, were, were friendly. Um, uh, Lou Tavery, um, um, you know, you know, these are people who you're lucky enough to meet over the years. Um, you know, um, fished with me and, you know, some of us went and got our, uh, you know, our Federation of Fly Fishing Casting, uh, certification. You know, the organization has a different name now. Yeah, you know, I have that, but, um, and, and, and Lou taught me a couple of things and we'd stayed in touch over the years, you know, on and off. Um, but I, I would say, you know, my, my greatest, um, probably not having a mentor, but being a guide, all the feedback you get as a guide from being with different people every day, that that's invaluable. That taught me more about how to fit more how to work with people, more how to sort of open my mind up to different things in fly fishing than than any one person I've ever had um, uh, teaching me things. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was um, spent a little bit of time visiting with a friend who was running a guide school this past weekend in Western North Carolina, and we were talking about that kind of constraint of having to fish through someone else who may not be you know, the type of angler you are and like how that actually helps you become a much better angler and a much better teacher. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as a guide, you're on the back of the boat. I, I like to be on a push pole more than anything. Um, when, when I'm guiding, you know, some people guide out of boats and use electrics and stuff like that, but there's a certain intimacy that you get being on pole and working with people and you, you know, it's, it's a team, you know, fly fishing, uh, shallow water fly fishing, um, um, as a guide is it's, it's really, it's really the most cooperative thing you can do. And, and you really need to gel quickly with your angler and the bow. And, and once you make that connection with the angler, however you figure out how to make that connection, you know, once all those things sort of fall into place, you know, it's, it, it gets very exciting and people are learning and people are feeling each other and it, you know, communication gets easier. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's neat. You say that. Cause I always, you know, want to, you know, when I fish with a guide, I always want to be an extension of them and be able to, you know, do what, you know, they've done all this work to put me on the fish and I want to be able to kind of execute. So I think when that happens, it's pretty killer. It It is. Someone once said to me, <laughs> Someone said to me, you're doing all the fishing. All I'm doing is casting the rod. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I, I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. It was sort of telling, but you know, um, sure. 
I'd love to feel the fish tug, tug the line, but boy, it's really gratifying to, it's gratifying to make people happy and to give them a great day out there. And, you know, they get off the boat and they're all smiles and, and, you know, and, you know, they're going to have a good night's sleep because they caught a few fish and, and, uh, and, and they got to see things they might not normally see. I mean, I, I literally got off my skiff like 40 minutes before you and I got on tonight. And, and, um, we fished until sunset tonight. It was a tough day. It was a really tough day. And we're, we're fighting, you know, trying to find fish earlier in the day. And, and we had sort of an incoming tide that was really slow to stop and really slow to get going on, you know, fall. And finally at around three, three thirty, things started to happen. And then we got into this tiny little backwater where maybe went into a Creek. The Creek couldn't have been more than 15, 20 feet wide. And all of a sudden we've got waves of stripers coming out and it all came together in that one moment. And we had stripers up in the grass and they're feeding on, I don't know what they were feeding on shrimp. I could see some, some bait fish jumping out. And, and I mean, both of us, when we came, came back from, from this experience, me and, 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 uh, and my sport, Steve, we, we just were both completely faded and inhalated all at the same time. It was incredible. Yeah, that's really neat. And, you know, we had a really great conversation kind of planning the interview. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was, you know, how fishing became a safe place for you when you were growing up. And I was wondering if you would mind kind of sharing what you meant by that with our listeners. Sure. I mean, you know, we all have, you know, so many people have issues, you know, one one way or another. I I had the unfortunate or fortunate experience growing up of having um, a severe learning disability. And, 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 you know, I feel for a lot of people, so now they call it learning differences. When I was growing up, it was dyslexia or learning disability or however they want to call it. I, I, it doesn't matter. But, you know, it takes away your confidence that you can't read. And I couldn't really read until I was in seventh grade. But um, I had a particular um, um, intelligence for the outdoors. Um, and there's, there's this great psychologist named Gardner and Gardner talks about multiple intelligences and, you know, math smart and, you know, nature smart and all these different things. Anyway, I guess, I guess I had the nature smart one and I felt very at home in the outdoors and fishing I really capitalized on and it gave me the confidence to keep pushing forward to learn how to read and kind of stay out of trouble. And, and it was something to look forward to and, you know, if um if I didn't have fishing and also uh, another sport that that I, uh, I I really enjoy skiing, if I didn't have those things, um, boy, I can't imagine what kind of a person I would have been uh, growing up not having those kind of out- outlets. And and I was very fortunate that I was able to experience those because you know people who are impoverished or 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 just don't know what what direction they want to go in. Um, may not have those opportunities. I'm very grateful that I did. And, and so I try to give back as often as I can, for, you know, because I, I had those opportunities and, and I was allowed to fish. It was just a wonderful thing. Yeah, and was that kind of the, 
kind of the germ or the foundation of your desire to become a guide, kind of being able to share that piece with other people? You know, I, I think though, I, I think, you know, it didn't really formulate my head till college. It, it, you know, you know, you love it and you want to do it all the time. And when you're really young, you don't know that you can do it for a living. And then, you know, you watch things like American sportsmen or chasing silver or stuff like that. And that came well after I was, you know, more mature. I had already been a guy by the time that came out, but you know, thing like you're watching American sportsmen and, 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 and Mark Sos and saltwater journal and stuff like that. And you're like eight, nine and 10 years old. And you're like, well, these guys are guides and, and they're making money at it. That's, that's kind of cool. And by the time I got to college, I realized it's something maybe I do want to do, but I, would never say it out loud because like everybody in my family were these incredible overachievers and, you know, far be it for me to be a fishing guide when everybody else is doing much more, you know, heady things. But eventually, you know, I closed my eyes and said, you know, what is it that you really want to do after, you know, having a couple of failed careers and not really liking the direction I'm going. And I was like, yeah, get back to your roots, do what you love, you know, don't, don't uh, make it, um, don't make it recreation, make it uh, a vocation. Yeah. Cause I think you started your guide, your guide service, what, when you were 29 or 30, something like that. I think, uh, something like that, 1996. Um, and I did a little, you know, I did a little guiding up on the Delaware, um, for Al Coochie for a couple of springs and yeah, I like the trout thing and I like guiding up there, but I really kind of wanted to do my own thing. And, um, I was very close to saltwater. That was really, um, a lot of the fishing I did. My grandparents lived, uh, two of my grandparents lived on Martha's Vineyard and I spent a lot of time growing up there and, and loved, loved the fishing there. And, and, uh, uh, long before, I mean, I was in Long Island too with, with my parents, but, um, I, I was really, um, influenced by, uh, by the fishing of Martha's Vineyard in so many different ways. Um, and, uh, and, uh, that, that did bring me eventually brought me, uh, home as I would say to what I do now. And do you mind sharing a little bit more about your journey and kind of how you got to the jumping off place when you were 29 or 30? Yeah. I mean, I had been, uh, you know, I, I, before that I was, um, you know, an assistant producer in advertising. And then I started producing and directing some smaller commercials. And, and I just, um, I kind of was tiring of being in the office and, and all those, you know, pressures, not self driven pressures, but pressures, outside pressures to do certain things. And, and I think maybe my, my learning disability may have had an effect on me there, but um, um, uh, so I stopped doing that and I started, I worked at Orvis for a while and then I moved on to, uh, to Eddie Bauer where they had me helping run, um, something called the sports shop division. And, and, and I was doing that in the East coast for them. And, and, um, while I was doing that, um, I was taking my Coast Guard exam. I was like, you know, I just can't be in a store. I, I, I left I left advertising because I didn't want to be in an office. And being in a store was almost as bad, um, even though it was a wonderful company to work for when I did. And so I started getting my Coast Guard license. And then one summer I bought a boat 
and I sort of stuck my toe in the water saying, let me see, let me see if this is going to work. And by my second summer, I was already 75, 80% booked for between May and, and uh, the end of October. And I was like, this is going to work. So um, one day I walked into Eddie Bauer and I said, uh, thank you. <laughs> it's been a nice <laughs> ride, but this is what I'm doing full time. Uh, and uh, uh, I wish I'd just taken the 65 sick days that I didn't know I had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could have scouted a little bit more water, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. But that that kind of, yeah, that was sort of, that was sort of it. And, and there was, you know, a little bit of emotional pushing on my part. Um, you know, certain things don't come easy for me and, and change is not always so easy, but, um, I always like in my life, I always hit these little doorways that where I'm like, you know, you got to go through it. Um, if you don't, you're going to regret it. Yeah. And, and how did it feel when you kind of realized that you had kind of connected those dots and you were able to kind of align your life with your passion? You know what? I was, I was super happy. You know, it, it, it gave me a sense of freedom and, and, and emotional freedom. Um, and, and here you are, you're finally doing what you love to do. And, you know, um, some people get to do it earlier in life. For me, it was, uh, you know, it was around age 29, 30. And, um, and, and I just said to myself, uh, wow, I'm so lucky to be here. And I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life than when I finally started to become a guide and really appreciate how lucky I was. Yeah, it's a phenomenal thing. I mean, I think, you know, it's always kind of amazed me to be around really talented people that didn't feel like they had very much agency over their lives. Yeah. Um, and to basically, yeah. you know, spend your entire career doing something you really don't like, um, you know, when if you could just kind of muster the courage up and, and make it happen, you could do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. It's it's like, um, you know, when you're working – like in an ad agency or something, you know, people, people, I think this is the thing for me. I think people lack transparency. Um, and people are always holding things very close to the vest. And when you're trying to work like in an ad agency, if you're doing something right, it would be nice for somebody to, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not reality, but be nice for somebody to tell you, you did a good job. But if you're doing something wrong, it would be nice for someone to just come up and kind of put their hand on your shoulder and say, you know, why don't you try changing this and you'll be, and you'll be much better. And I think it's such a cutthroat world out there in many ways. People just don't want to do that. Um, and, 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 and you find yourself kind of, you know, floating in space, you know, not knowing what direction to go because somebody wasn't willing to, you know, give you the proper direction. So um, even even then, I mean, I, I had a wonderful person who I worked for in advertising who aimed to be as close to a mentor as possible, but I just didn't get the full benefit of it. Um, uh, and But I would say, you know, going full circle back to the mentor thing, I would say every single client I've ever had has been a mentor. 
because of what I learned from, as I said earlier, what I learned from all these different people. And, and it just made me a much better guide. And, and I would say maybe, you know, I don't know if I'm a good guide, but I can tell you in my heart and in my head, I'm better, I'm better today than I was yesterday. And I was better yesterday than I was the day before and, and so on. I mean, the learning process is ever going and, and, you know, it just doesn't stop. And each day is a different experience. I mean, you know, the fifth rule, we're just out there trying to have a little fun with them. Um, so, so, uh, you know, you get out there and you're with a client and, you know, they may be in a certain mood. You might be in a certain mood. The fish are always in a certain mood and, and you're just, you know, you're picking up all these things as you go along and it just doesn't stop. Yeah. I think that, you know, that posture of curiosity and kind of hunger, um, is so incredibly important, right? Um, you know, to not be, you know, some of my old work colleagues, we used to joke about the race to the sofa, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, that, that way to be in the world can lead to some, you know, it's incredible, can be incredibly frustrating, right? I think you and I talked uh, the last time we spoke to prep for the interview about, you know, when you do things that way, you know, a lot of days the wind is blowing really, really hard in your face, but every now and then you get some wind at your back and it feels pretty good. It, it does. It does. I mean, both metaphorically and literally, I mean, um, you know, as I said earlier, we were having a really tough day today. And finally, I just pulled the plug on what we were doing. I said, you know, we're going somewhere else. And, um, you know, we had a dead, we had a dead low tide in, in the evening. And I went way up into a creek, dragging the belly of my boat. And here we are finding fish. You know, don't be afraid to try something new or experiment. I mean, you know, when you have, you know, you have a, enough confidence in your ability and, and when you have that confidence, it allows you to try new things or go to places where, you know, normally there's not fish here on this tide, but let's see what happens. And and we went back there half an hour before sunset, and we really got rewarded. It was it was uh, quite an experience, and and I think, you know, I can say that about tonight, but I can say that about uh, you know, a lot of things. Um, you know, for example, every so often I'll have a client who I fish with a lot and I'll say, then, um, say to him, you want to do the usual or do you want to go someplace different? Do you want to try new places and new gear and new flies? And, and I, I love it when they're open-minded and, and we kind of connect on that level and, you know, you're not always successful, but you always have a great time. Yeah, and I think to kind of go with that curiosity too, you know, cultivating that posture, and it's really difficult, I think, in today's environment to learn how to fail quickly. Yes, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, the the one thing that happens when you do fail quickly is it's just like striking out in baseball. You know, don't let don't let, let that one time at the plate get you down. You know. You know, you've, you've got many more, you know, you've got many more times to get up to the plate and bat today. So, you know, if you fail quickly today or you fail quickly in the morning, um, you know, just, just, you know, shake it off and get back, get back there, 
you know, and, 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 uh, get the bat in your hand and start swinging again. You know, you got three strikes and four balls. Take care, take advantage of all of them. Yeah. Most good hitters are hitting, you know, in the 300. So there you go. That's right. And, and all the 300 hitters strike out every game. They either pop out or strike out every game, but they're still, they're still batting 300. So that's something they, they just shake it off. Um, you know, you have trips every season where you might get the skunk and, uh, and, you know, people who know fishing know that 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 can happen. And, uh, you know, unfortunately in striper fishing here in the Northeast, it might be happening more and more to some people because, you know, uh, the numbers of bass have just dropped precipitously, but, you know, um, with enough experience and enough time on the water that even with, with lower numbers of fish, you, those, those experiences, uh, happen fewer and fewer times. Yeah. And also too, I wanted to get back to the mentorship thing. Cause it's one of those things that I'm absolutely obsessed about. Right. And I think it's, um, yeah. I think it's a absolute force multiplier. I think, um, you know, I think being generous with your time with people that want to learn is like one of the greatest things you can, I mean, it's really kind of the most valuable thing you can give is your time. Right. Yeah. Um, I worked with, um, with the group in New York I actually helped start it. Um, but I really, I didn't really help start it, but I was uh, on the ground floor called veteran anglers of New York. And, um, a good friend of mine, um, two friends of mine, Rich and Tamar Franklin, um, guarded it. And I got a call from them and they said, you know, we need a, a you know, some casting instructors. And I was like, count me in. And we were working with veterans, um, with PTSD. Um, and we were using Y casting is the vehicle to get them through that. And eventually we started taking some of these people on trips and, and, and I remember one trip we took them, I don't know, six or seven of these guys to the Bahamas bone fishing. And, um, there was one, <laughs> there was one particular guy, um, Andy, uh, and Andy, if you're listening, you know, it's you. And, uh, uh, um, we took them fishing for the Bahamas. We took them fishing out of Montauk and we had an all out all day long blitz of Albies and stripers. Uh, and he said to me at the end of the day, which I couldn't relate to, but I understood. He said, when his adrenaline went off fishing that day, he said, it was almost like being under fire when he was in the middle East. And I was like, what? He was like, it was, it's crazy. Uh, you know, the, you know, the hair was up on the back of my neck. I felt the excitement, like everything was just crackling. And I was like, I was like, really? And he's, he was like, yes. And I couldn't relate to the, you know, under fire thing, but I could relate to the excitement of the moment. Um, and you know, we had, you know, teaching them how to cast was one thing, teaching them how to appreciate being in the moment fishing. That's a whole different story. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, kind of curious, David, too, kind of how did the salt win your heart over freshwater? It's, it's hard to say. I still love freshwater and I think I just keep freshwater for me. I think, um, you know, I've had a, it's not that I've had negative experience with freshwater fishing, but when you're on the stream or on a river, you can't always be alone. And there's times when I've been 
working a glide or a ripple in a nice run and where it tails out, you know, very often that's sort of the sweet spot, but you want to work your way down to these sweet spots. And I'll be out on the river and people just like walk right out into the middle is they can see us working our way down. And, and I'm just like, wow, why did you do that? Uh, you know, I'm with somebody and we're clearly working our way down, you know, to, to the tail out of this thing. And, and you just walk right in. And this happened to me a whole number of times. It even happens to me personally. Um, when, when I'm fishing and, and, you know, I, I think it's just, uh, I'll give people the benefit of doubt. They just don't know any better. And, and, and it takes um, time on the water before you develop um, proper etiquette. Um, so I was like, all the times I've been saltwater fly fishing, I've just been out there alone. You know, I can get away from it all. Um, and, and, you know, my experiences in Martha's Vineyard, Growing up as a kid, you know, very comfortable in the salt. I just, it was sort of a natural um, evolution for me. Um, and I still love trout fishing and, and largemouth bass fishing and doing that. But I, I'll do that for me because if somebody walks into my pool um, and I'm alone, it doesn't bother me. If I'm guiding somebody, I might get very upset. And, and I don't want that to happen. And, and in saltwater, you know, in saltwater, I can just, uh, I could just, you know, pull the boat in another direction and get away from somebody if they're, if they're, you know, in my way or, or, or someplace or somebody drives the boat onto a flat that I'm on, I can just, you know, pay them no mind and just, you know, put my motor down and drive somewhere else and find another place. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And it, it's a certain, certain amount of freedom, uh, on the salt water. Um, you know, yeah, I'll confess, I I walk quite a bit to get away from people when I'm fishing for trout. Yeah, I mean, I've been known like you know, this past summer I'm visiting my dad in Idaho, and and uh, I'm fishing all the usual, you know, the usual spots. And finally, there were a whole bunch of people in in a few spots I wanted to go to. So finally, drove my car to a trailhead and walked a, a mile and a half up 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 river where I knew nobody would be, and and you know, I had a beautiful i don't know three quarters of a mile long stretch of river where there was not another person and i and i got to catch a few fish <laughs> yeah it doesn't get much better than that and i you know i understand too that you sort of developed a, an expertise kind of uh in long island and kind of up around uh, martha's vineyard for for chasing fish on the flats how did that come about well you know you know when i started my business um you know, I was based out of the Hamptons in Long Island. Um, I, I'm very fortunate enough that there's a family home here, so I could I could base my business out of here. And and um, and I, even though my grandparents are long gone, I was still spending time up up on Martha's Vineyard. Um, but I really started to study the water differently um, in Long Island. And it was post moratorium, and there were loads and loads. You could pretty much go anywhere you wanted um, on the East End of Long Island in the um, in the mid to early '90s, and you know, walk away with loads of fish every day. It, it really was not a huge effort to find fish. Um, and because there were so many fish, it kind of allowed you to 
just go far and wide and just fish in places that you might not even think there'd be fish. And, and, and that experience of that kind of freedom, because the numbers were so huge, allowed me to get into, you know, study tides, water temperatures, um, water depth, um, figure out some of the spawning areas that stripers spawn in because we, we do have a local spawning population of fish out here. It's kind of been decimated over the past 10 years, but um, I was able to locate um, some spawning areas where I was able to find some really big fish in some really small places. Um, and and uh, doing all that in a skiff on a, on a pole, on the pole, really gives you a more intimate understanding. I'm not just out there drifting in rips, you know, um, I would say, I would say 90% of the fishing I do is probably within a hundred feet of shore or, or maybe even 50 feet. And, uh, that really gives you an intimate understanding of, of the area you're fishing and, and, and how to fish it. And, uh, of course, time on the water is everything. So I started in 1996, and now it's 2023, soon to be 2024. And um, as much as I've learned here, I'm still learning. Um, you know, it's just it's just taking the time to understand, and don't be quick. Um, I say to a lot of my clients who are casting. You know, I say very often when they're rushing their cast, rushing is a waste of time because the cast will fall apart. And same thing about learning um, an area and how to fish it. You know, rushing through is a waste of time. Sometimes you have to take the time to really feel it out and, and look, look really closely, look deeply. I don't know if that explains it to you, but that's, that's how I approach it. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I, I get it. And, you know, it's... um you know, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, I find probably, I don't know, gosh, maybe in the last five to seven years, um, you know, I'm a much more patient angler, right. In the sense of, um, I've never been a fish counter, right. But, but I, um, but I'm, you know, there are so many other things other than just catching the fish that make the day special. Um, mm -hmm. and just learning things. Right. And, you know, even back, you know, you were talking about the skunk days, you know, I always tell kind of newer anglers, I said, even on days you get skunked, you learn all kinds of stuff, right? Like how to deal with your gear, how to tie your knots. And so, you know, even if you don't, you know, I have to kind of believe the hard days, you know, if you go out and just whack fish, I don't know that you learn a whole lot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. If it was easy, if it was easy, I don't think any of us would do it. You know, I mean, the challenge is so good. There's days where there's fish all over the place and they're just not eating and you want to crack the code so bad and you're going through the box or you're changing the leader, you're changing the retrieve, you know, you're doing whatever you can to crack the code. And, and that those tough days when you're seeing fish, but they're not eating really well, I think those are the most interesting, fun days there are. Yeah, I would definitely not fly fish if it was easy, right? And I mean, I, you know, for me, it's one of those things like I'm, 
wound relatively tightly. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so for me, one of the things that attracted me to fly fishing was, it was a problem I couldn't consistently solve. Um, because kind of in my work life, you know, you just basically put more time and mental energy into it and you just crack the, you know, crack the egg. Um, and so that, yeah, I would a hundred percent have zero interest in fly fishing if it was, if it was easy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was just thinking when you were talking, <laughs> I have a lot of compassion for fish counters because they're going to be disappointed a great deal of the time because they're not taking the time to like look around. I mean, I mean, yeah, we all want to catch fish and that's why we're doing it. But, but I would say the process, the process and the buildup is, is what gives us all that gratification once we finally get a fish. And, and, and very often while I'm on pole, I've got my camera dangling around my neck and it's not a light camera. It's not an iPhone. You know, I've got, you know, I've got a DSLR with, you know, a 300 millimeter lens dangling around my neck very often. And, and sometimes there's things that come up and, you know, you got to let the camera, you know, do its job and, and it allows you to express yourself. And then you, you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, you show, you know, you show the picture to the client, you're like, you want a copy of it? You know, this was your day. They might not have caught a fish, but they're getting a, a beautiful photo because, you know, we're taking the time to appreciate where where we are. It's not just, you know, it's not just about, you know, it's not just about ripping lips. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause on this trip I just got back from, we were, we were fishing mice and I think one night we were out, um, until three in the morning and the other night midnight. And, um, you know, that is not a, uh, high probability game by any stretch of the imagination. Um, no. <laughs> and so, you know, it's really kind of, you know, you, you might as well say you're going to trying to go out and catch lightning in a bottle. Um, but, um, you know, it's interesting all the things that we saw in the sense of, you know, the wildlife and just the experience of being on the on the river in the dark. And um, I don't know, it's an interesting thing. And so I guess, you know, for me, I guess where I am on my fly fishing journey is I just want to be able to catch fish the way I want to catch them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember a few years ago, um, uh, I was in Belize and we until like seven, eight at night one night. And we decided to take the um, the panga up the river directly to camp instead of you know going into town where we normally have a car pick us up. And we're going up the river and it's pitch black and the guide knows where he is. I'm like we're in a zigzaggy windy river. I have no idea what's going on. And then all of a sudden the trees are lighting up on opposite sides of the river and I'm like what the? And we've got groups of fireflies in a tree on one side of the river lighting up an entire tree and the fireflies across the river are answering them, flashing back at them. I mean, I mean, we didn't catch a permit that day. We didn't catch a single fish that day. I will never trade that experience of seeing the fireflies do that display. Or I would have rather seen those fireflies doing that than catch three permits that day. It was just incredible. It's an amazing experience. Yeah, I mean, there there experiences like that, and then you know, you always have these really kind of interesting, kind of serendipitous in- encounters with other anglers and other people, right? Um, you know, it's just always amazing, like whether you bump into them at the gravel barn in us after fishing all day, and it's really really cold because it's October or whatever it is, or 
you run into an old fishing buddy, but there are just all those little um, kind of colorful vignettes that happen that have really nothing to do with the fishing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the best thing is, you know, you're out there fishing and, you know, another guide friend, or you're out there, you know, you know, fishing, not as a guide, but as, as just a sport. And you see another skiff and it turns out to be somebody, you know, and you're wrapped up together and have lunch together. And, you know, normally you're just kind of eating on the run or a quick 20 minute lunch and you end up hanging out for an hour, boat to boat, just talking about the day, saying how much, how beautiful it is and how great it is. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a wow. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so David, you know, what is a typical day on the water like with you? Well, I mean, we could sort of do day in a life of a guide, right? You know, I wake up early. Um, well, actually, it all starts the night before, really. You know, after a day of fishing, I have to make sure the rods are rigged and everything's clean. The flies aren't beat up from the day before or from that day. So uh, I, I don't like to get things ready in the morning. I like to get things ready the night before. And then I'll wake up. I'll I'll meet my client someplace or I'll pick them up, slide the boat in the water after picking up lunch someplace or making it. And, um, you know, uh, try to make sure, you know, if the clients bring their rods, that they're, they're rigged before they get on the boat. Because rigging a rod once you're on the boat means you're, you're, you're missing opportunities. So you want to have everything rigged at the car or at the trailer. And, um, and it's, you know, each day is a little bit different, but you try to get into the flow of the day. You know, you slip the boat in the water, you get in, you talk about expectations. If somebody's new to the game, you know, what to expect, what they're going to be seeing, what they should be looking for. Um, and, and you kind of go from there and, and then you just try to start feeling out, you know, the person on the bow and, and, see if they're understanding what they're ta- what you're talking about if they're seeing the fish um and and if they're not and um um if people are open there's there's some there's sometimes uh, a little bit of fly casting instruction or a little bit of fly casting help and um um you know you fish until either the tide is doing something that is not you know is not going to help you. Maybe you'll stop. Sometimes you eat lunch at 10 in the morning. Sometimes you eat lunch at two in the afternoon, depending on the tide. Sometimes you're just, you know, you're fishing through an entire tide and you're not eating lunch till the end of the day. But, um, you know, that's kind of how the day goes. It's kind of hard to explain, but, um, uh, and then uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, the, it can be the high fives and the thank yous and, you know, your air dropping photos from your phone to the other person's phone. And, you know, they're, they're, they're showing their appreciation or not. And, and, uh, you know, get the boat back up on the trailer and go home, prepare and, you know, do it all over again the next day. Yeah. That's, it's, it's, it's not super exciting until you're the one who's on the bow of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> you, you also told me, right. You only fish your flies, right? You know, for the most part I do, there's a couple of flies, a couple of flies I will buy, um, which, uh, I, 
occasionally I'll buy some crease flies. Um, but I would say 90% of the flies, uh, that, that are used on my boat, I tie. I, I mean, if I look in my fly box right now, probably I can count on one hand the amount of flies that are not mine. Uh, and, and I've got a big box, I, my, probably my the three boxes I carry with me each have about 300 flies a piece in them. And, and most of the flies are exactly the same. I probably have five or six different patterns, but I vary them in size and color. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, part of my, uh, part of my day is, is in the evening. If I feel like I'm running out of particular color or hook size, uh, I'll tie up, um, I'll tie up a few for the next day. Um, usually I'll do that after dinner. <laughs> <laughs> got it and you know for folks that aren't kind of f- uh, familiar with your fisheries you want to kind of let folks know kind of the arc of your guide season i would say you know um as soon as the weather breaks um you know give it a little bit of time but you know may through november may through like early november um it used to be may through the end of october and it'd be like the end of may but um, I've definitely seen a change in weather patterns and climate and in the seasons become longer um, where I'm fishing earlier and earlier in May and I'm fishing later and later in October or November, I should say. Um, and, and there are probably more open spots throughout the season where we don't find as big a density as, of dry bass as we used to. And again, that's, that's not just a function of climate but it's also a function of um uh management of the resource or or as i like to say mismanagement of the resource um uh and we have three primary species we fish for here which is tripest bluefish and false albacore and occasionally we'll you know get a weak fish and some bonito um and early in the season it's usually bass first then bluefish come in shortly after um, and false albacore usually are showing up either the very, very last couple of days of August or sometime in the first week or two of September. And we'll fish those. Last year, we were catching albies. I was get, getting albies till like November 5th last year, November 6th. Um, uh, and then um, we have our shoulder season, or, or I, you know, it's a big shoulder season here in the Northeast from, from November until May. But, um, uh, during that time period, um, if I'm not teaching skiing, I'm taking groups, um, to, um, Belize, Mexico or the Bahamas hosting trips for tarpon permit and bonefish. Mm, sounds like a horrible existence. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. So, so we were talking when we were preparing for the interview about, you know, how we, we see in fly fishing, it's such a powerful solvent and connector among people. And I was kind of curious on your thoughts about why you think that's the case. I, I think fly fishing, it's kind of weird. Um, fly fishing is looked upon as almost like a cult-like existence or sport. Um, you know, when you tell people you fly fish, they're like, ah, you're, you're fishing in a river for trout or, or, or you're whipping the rod around and, and, and catching fish. And, you know, a lot of people don't fully understand it, but when you explain it to them, they like it. But all the people who do fly fish 
it, it's it's a kindred spirit, I, and I it, and it's not that unique. Fly fishing, you know, people come to me and say, "Well, I do regular fishing," and uh, I'll be like, "Well, what's regular fishing?" Well, I use a spin reel, and I'll be like, "I don't think there's any such thing as regular fishing. There's spin fishing, and there's white tackle, and there's trolling, and bait fishing, and fly fishing." And, and, and uh, I would contend that, you know, fly fishing is maybe one of the earlier forms of rod and reel fishing. What could be more regular than that? <laughs> but there's, there's that connection with fly anglers, uh, especially I think the ones who tie their own flies, which, which is very, very powerful. It, it's, um, it, it's the people who fly fish may have, I, I don't think they have a greater appreciation of nature in, in, in the environment, but in many ways, I feel like very often they might be more connected. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you say that about tying. Cause I always kind of explain to people that even if you don't tie like seriously, like it's just another way when you can't get out on the water that you can kind of touch that thing that makes fly fishing so special to you. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you think of fly fishing as a way of expressing yourself, then fly tying is certainly a really good way to express yourself. Um, uh, uh, my buddy Lu Yen and I uh, have a wonderful little um, uh, show called Masters of the Fly. Everyone go to mastersoffly.com and you know, see what we do. But we have fly tires. Come on. Um, we have a lot of different guests, but we have fly tires come on and they're just, they're so fascinating and they're so connected and, when people are talking about the flies they tie, they can't help but talk about, you know, the environments they're fishing the flies and, and how to do it and, and, and the places they've been to, to experience, you know, how their flies work. It's really, it's really, really interesting. And, and, um, and we've had a, a lot of really good feedback, um, from, from, both the fly tires and the people who've listened to the fly tires, but just about their experiences and, and, and what they do. Uh, I know that when I'm sitting down and tying flies, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the fish I'm fishing to, but I'm not just thinking about the fish. I tie my flies to mimic a particular environment. So if I'm fishing a, a, a bottom that's got a lot of grass and a lot of green, my flies tend to be a little bit darker or a slightly different color pattern versus the flies that I use when I'm fishing over a sandy bottom because the bait takes on the characteristics of, of the environment that that particular bit of bait lives in. Um, I know that when I'm fishing stripers, stripers are much lighter in color as well on a sandy bottom Versus if I'm fishing stripers um, over eelgrass, where they'll be very dark and mossy in color. Um, so all these things are taken into account um, when you're tying flies. And, and it's that understanding that, you know, that connection that we all have and we all see it that, that makes it possible, you know, for us to relate to each other so well. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I really don't think you can be a really effective tire and designer if you don't fish a lot, because I don't think you can really understand the fishing problems you're trying to solve unless you've actually experienced them. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and the 
and the flies that I tie are really, they're not, I don't think they're super innovative. Um, but what they are is they take into account color and size. And, 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 you know, as, as you said, you know, when you're, you know, connected to the environment and you're seeing things, just adjusting color and size is sometimes all you need to do. Maybe I can, I can tie deceivers and I, I'll tie deceivers maybe a little bit different than the next guy, but I might tie them sparser, more dense. I'm using deceivers as an example, sparser, more dense, maybe use some synthetic materials and deceivers versus natural materials and deceivers. So I can mimic what, what I'm seeing, you know, maybe some, you know, deceivers that I tie have, you know, morphed into something that's not a deceiver at all, but it certainly was the, the, the genesis of, of what I was tying and, and, or, or things like, um, things like, uh, high ties, um, you know, you take those and, and you and you change them and you change the color and the size and you know, you do a high tie and then you're like, Well, I like this high tie, but boy, I bet if I throw some make make the high tie a full collar of high tie and then I throw some feathers behind it, it'll give it some a certain kind of action. And I'm gonna fix it over this particular bottom, so I'm gonna make it this color. And and you know, things things start to evolve and 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 you can see how the fish are reacting to these things as you experiment with your fly tying and your colors and your size. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty neat. And for folks that aren't familiar, you want to tell us a little bit more about kind of what Masters of the Fly is and kind of its genesis. And then, you know, I know the next season is coming up soon. You know what you have on tap for 2024? Well, we don't. Well, well, I'll give you a couple of things that we're thinking about on tap, but. Master of the Fly came out. Um, my buddy Luyan and I were were tying flies online during COVID, and we had a bunch of people. And Luyan actually invited me in on it, and then we started doing it together. And we started. We were both of him and I were tying flies, and we had a whole bunch of us in the Zoom call. I think the first couple ones there were like four or five of us, and eventually there were like fifteen or twenty of us. And um, we realized that there was something needed in the fly fishing community. So, so Lou and I started throwing around ideas of doing, you know, these, these, these zoom casts, um, sort of a visual podcast, if you will. And, and then we started, you know, figuring out names and, and we came up with the concept of masters of the fly, not because everyone's a master. And in, and in fact, it's just the opposite. Um, uh, it, it's to master something really has to do with, with being part of a community and finding joy uh, from it. You don't have to be an expert to be a master. You know, it's like being a Zen master, you know, if you can, you know, you can, you can sort of master of your own domain. Right. Um, so we came up, we came up with masters of the fly. We came up with Masters of the Fly because we wanted to uh, serve the community, uh, the fly fishing community, with guest speakers and and fly tires. Um, 
we've had people, um, we've had the American Saltwater Guides Association, which kicked off, which has kicked off each season, and they're talking about the environmental issues and and and, and fisheries management and what they're trying to do to um, help you know keep fisheries alive. We've had Chris Wood from Trout Unlimited. We had Andy Mill, who's you know probably one of the greatest carpet fishermen of all time. Um, we've had uh, Johnny King, uh, who's a phenomenal fly tire. And there's there's a lot of people. We're uh, I'm really hoping we get Joe Blados this year, who who invented the crease fly, and 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 a whole bunch of other things. Well, of course, we're going to have um, uh, the American Saltwater Guides Association kick off our show this year, and and it is the talk about that is probably going to be about the decreasing striped bass numbers as well as um, tagging programs for false albacore, which um, we're, you know, we hold very near and dear to us, the false albacore. So, um, you know, that's kind of masters of fly in a, in a very long, very big nutshell <laughs> in, in what we do. But, but I, you know, go to the website. We've also done some content. Um, there's a very funny one of me and Lou uh, catching sharks on fly rods two years ago. Um, there's another one of us uh, catching bluefish. There's another one of, of me and Lou with 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 one of our our, our co-hosts Eric Schatzker, um, where we're out to dry bass fishing uh, in shallow water. And of course, I'm the one on the pole, and and uh, uh, Lou and and Eric are are the lucky ones catching catching the stripers. So. We we do have some content uh, on YouTube uh, as well, but uh, everything can be all of our past shows can be accessed uh, through YouTube, and you can get to it through through our website, uh, Masters of the Fly. So, um, yeah, thanks for asking. Oh, for sure, and I'll drop links to all that stuff and all the related social in the show notes. And you know, David, did you want to talk a little bit more for folks that aren't super familiar, kind of about the the conservation and fishery management issues? I know striper are a really hot topic. Uh, you know, I know there's some management issues. I know there's some data issues, but you want to kind of talk a little bit more about that. So, uh, our listeners will get a little bit better feel for what's going on. I mean, we just had recently some horrible numbers come out on striped bass recruitment or spawn. It was the second worst, um, it was second worst spawn, I think since record keeping. And I can't remember the last really, really bad one. I think it was like 2012. Um, that on top of overfishing the 2015 year class, um, the and and um, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So we had a moratorium in the 80s into the early 90s on striped bass. Um, they weren't allowed to be targeted, and um, the striped bass fishery came back, roaring back. If you if you leave something alone, it will really heal itself. Um, so, so all the, all the fisheries management people and all their wisdom pretty much forgot the lessons of the past. We had, uh, a limit of, uh, one fish at 38 inches, and then it went to one at 36 inches. Then they went to two at 28. And when they went to two at 28, things started to change. Now, most people did not recognize the change right away because there were still, you know, lots and lots of fish out there. But within five years, I was noticing changes. And then cut to three years ago, they decided to create a slot limit and do a 17% reduction in the fishery. 
Um, and I'm probably not getting this completely right, but a 17% reduction in harvest, and they said that that would help bring the stocks back. But the problem was, the problem was, is that it will help bring stocks back if recruitment, you know, stays at a at a constant, um, which it wasn't. And in the numbers have steadily been declining since 2015. Um, so, us at Masters of the Fly and the American Saltwater Guides Association, um, you know, we're trying to put put things out there. Um, through either letter writing campaigns or people going to hearings, you know, to talk about what's going on so that, you know, the management managers at the ASMFC um, and would understand that, you know, we are concerned about this. And uh, a robust striped bass victory is super important because so many people make their living either as guides um, is guides making money that manufacturers, manufacturers who aren't even here in the Northeast, manufacturers as far away as, you know, Washington state, um, are, you know, and, you know, count on a healthy striped bass fishery to sell rods and reels and there's hotels and delis and, you know, there's, there's, you know, primary, secondary and tertiary effects of, 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 of this fishery that are so very important, not just, you know, not just economically, but also culturally. So it's really, really important that that we all fight for a healthy, robust fishery, um, uh, which it is not right now. And and we're at a crossroads. And um, you know, we're all hoping, you know, through our efforts that something gets done, and and it needs to be done in a hurry. Unfortunately. Yeah, and my understanding too is it's even you know it's complicated by kind of poor management decisions in the past, uh, poor yeah. data collection, which I know is something that, you know, I interviewed Lou Yen and we talked about, you know, how he's trying to help with that. But also, you know, my understanding is that one of the challenges is that it's, you know, there's a multi-jurisdictional management issue because, I mean, the stripers are, you know, from north of you all the way down to kind of where I am. And so you've got, you know, not just commercial versus rec, but you've got all these different states in the federal government involved as well. That's right. That's right. And I don't know why we call it fisheries management. It should really be called fisheries mismanagement. But, but um, we do. It's, it's so complicated with all the different jurisdictions and, and, you know, everybody wanting their piece of the pie. And when, we all, when it's all said and done, there's going to be no pie for anybody because, um, because there's, there's a, a you know, for uh, it's it's hard to put into words, but it's everybody wants the same thing, but not everybody wants to make the sacrifice. Um, um, it's kind of like the pay me now or pay me later scenario. Like everybody wants to make the money now and catch the striped bass and you know, in 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 both the biggest or the most or whatever. But then when when and and they're saying you know we don't need r- restrictions. But then when all these restrictions that have not been put into place finally come into place or people are told they can't catch striped bass anymore, all the people, this is how I feel. So all the people are, who wanted to be catching the striped bass, I feel like they're all going to have their hand out saying, well, why didn't you tell us this was happening? Um, 
and 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 now you know I can't run my business anymore and this and that you know because uh you know and 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 I kind of say to those people you know who 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 weren't heeding the 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 warning signs you know you those people were were the uh you know those people were the cause of the problem if we could have all just been on the same page understanding you know how to manage our fishery properly we all could have had a nice piece of the pie and an equal piece of the pie but now that's not possible any longer and it's it's very unfortunate yeah, it's an interesting thing about, you know, kind of what clears things out when people have to roll up their sleeves and give something up or do a little bit of work, right? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with making a little sacrifice for a lot of gain further down the road. You know, and and you, not every day is going to be a wonderful day. You know, not every day you're going to have, you know, get a ton of bath. Not every day is the fishery going to be open. Um. And, 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 but you know that at least you're going to stay in business and you know that you're going to wake up that first day in May when you can start fixing stripers and you know, they're going to be there. I don't know. They're going to be there next May. I just don't. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I mean, we had some fish this May and it was very nice, but you know, had to work hard. There were not a lot of stripers on the sand. There were, there were, you know, people are catching, you know, outside the Hudson and maybe the Chesapeake, they're, you know, they're catching a lot of big fish here and there. But I remember when I first started guiding and even up until probably seven, eight years ago, we'd be catching multiple year classes out of any given school of fish or out of any given day that we'd be pulling a flat. It's not that way anymore. It just isn't. It, it used to be. This is this is how maybe you know arrogant we all were in a way. I wouldn't let clients cast at a fish that was under like twenty seven, twenty eight inches when I first started guiding. That's how many big fish we had in shallow water. I'd be like, hold on, don't cast at that fish. Wait, there'll be a really big one coming along and you get shot at because if you catch this twenty six inch dink right now and a thirty five inch fish comes along, you're going to regret it. <laughs> And maybe it was a way for, for me to appreciate the bigger fish or not. But now, like, I don't care at what size the striper is that swims along. I'm, like, cast at it. <laughs> yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of the smallmouth fisheries around where I grew up in Virginia, where you see the same thing, where you go out and you spend a day on the water, and you're not, you can see the holes in the classes because you're just not catching those fish at that size. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, and you know, the problem there, uh, you know, there's some management issues, but it's also been that, uh, you know, in the, during the spawn in the spring, we've had these scouring floods and, uh, that just basically washes everything down and, you know, knock on wood, luckily in the last five or six years, that's gotten a little bit better. So we're starting to see the recruitment come back, but, uh, you know, not that dissimilar from what you're seeing, you know, fishing for stripers now. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's such a thing. There's, I know there's a lot of poaching. Um, you know, there's a lot of people whose subsistence live and I feel for them and they're probably going to take any fish they catch. You can't really blame them for it because they don't have a lot of money or resources or whatever, and they're going to eat whatever they catch. But there's a lot of people, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of charter boat captains, fly fishing captains who might take fish. But the people are there really to catch fish. I don't know if they're necessarily there to kill the fish. So it's just about re-educating um, the client and saying, you know what, come out, catch a striper, but we're going to put him back. We're going to put him back all this season. We're going to put him back all next season because the season after that, we get to start keeping them again. Um, I, I'm, I'm strictly a catch and release captain, and I have been since the day I started. And I've had people call me up saying, well, I want to bring a striped bass home. You know, I'm hiring you for the day. I want to bring a striped bass home. And, I, and I'm like, that's not who I am. You want to bring a striped bass home? It'll be in a photograph. And they're like, well, no, we, we want to. And I'm like, no. And I'll say, you want, you want that? I'll give you the name of somebody who does it. But that's not what I do. I'm not here to use the resource but not abuse it. And, and they respect it. They're disappointed because... I got recommended to them, but, but that's, that's not, that's not my, that's not my thing. Um, you know? Yeah. And David, before I let you go this evening, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I mean, most importantly, if you are in the striped bass fishing community, make your voices heard. Say, Hey, it's time to do something about the declining numbers of stripers. And it's, and it and and speak up loud, write letters, write your congressmen, you know, senators, get um, you know, get a membership with the uh, American Saltwater Guides Association. Um do do whatever it is that you need to do to um to to preserve this fishery. It's it's super, super important. Um and and there's a great app. Lee developed a wonderful app. And what you can do is you can find out it's called got one and you can put all the stripers into your got one app. You know, you go fishing and you log it in and you can use your data of the fish you're catching. And, and uh, I think uh, the state of Massachusetts and some other people are, are using data from private anglers to help track fish and, and, and see what their numbers are. So I would say, you know, download the Got One app and and use it and and find out from Got One how your data can be shared for uh, for science and, and research. It's super super important. Yeah, and I'll I'll link back to my interview with Lu Yen, and you can learn, you know, folks, you can learn everything about the app. And the cool thing about sharing the data is you're sharing it. The data is anonymized, so it's basically shared with the um, the management agencies in like you know ten and fifteen mile strips. So you're not you're not spot burning. That's right. You're not spot burning. It's just going to the scientists. They couldn't care less about what your spots are. They only care about the fish, how big they are, what tide they were caught on, what what the numbers are, you know, and the density. Um, I'm a guide, and I use this app every single day. I do not have a care in the world of, about spot burning. It it is completely anonymous. Yeah, and rumor has it you're the most valuable beta tester. <laughs> Well, I've been finding some problems here and there with the uh, with the app, and uh, fortunately, I have a direct line to the uh, creator, so we we get it fixed really quick. But it's <laughs> it's such a wonderful app; it's 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 got incredible. It's it's one of the easiest apps to use. It's really quite self explanatory, and and you know, if you use it, you'll you'll figure it out right away.
Yeah. And so, David, before I let you hop, you want to let folks know where they can learn more about North Flats guiding and kind of follow your adventures on the water and on the slopes? Sure. Um, they can go for, with, you know, for North Flats guiding or, or you can just go to davidblinken.com or northflats.com uh, and you can find me uh, there. You can find me on Facebook. Um, and uh, you might also be able to find me, I think, on the Hardy website is one of their pros. Um, so, uh, that's, that's the easiest way to find me. Um, uh, my phone number's on my website, so you can get me that way and, you know, feel free to email me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love it when people, um, email me just to ask me questions, even if they're not, uh, even if they're not necessarily going to fish with me, you know, I'm happy to engage in conversation. It's a lot of fun. I do what I do because I love it. Um, it's my way of life. It's my lifestyle. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's who I am. Yeah. Very, very neat. And I'll drop links to all that stuff in the show notes to make it easy on everybody. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. This has been ter- This has been great fun. Yeah, it's been tremendous fun, and you know, and uh, we'll tease this for folks. We've got a multi-part series that'll be coming up, um, and uh, shortly that you'll start to see. So you'll get to hear a lot more from David in the future. But um, you know, David, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time. Uh, hopefully, I I caught you after dinner, maybe before fly tying for tomorrow, and uh, we got to hang out a little bit. Well, I only have four or five flies to tie tonight, Marvin, and and uh, and all I got to say is. Uh, Hopefully, uh, this gets you excited for striper fishing because uh, I, I hope to uh, see you on the bow of the boat sometime next spring. Yeah, that would be tremendously fun. I'll have to work on my seasickness, though. <laughs> uh, you won't get seasick in a skiff. We're fishing flat water. It, 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 you're rocking less in a skiff than you are in a canoe. Uh, well, sounds good. Well, listen, David, I really appreciate it. All right, Marvin, thank you so much. Take care. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcast of your choice. Be sure to head over to www.nor-vice.com to check out all the cool things going on at Norvice. Tight lines, everybody.